And as you're taking your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 2 Timothy. We are continuing to work our way through this summer, the book of 2 Timothy, and we've entitled this series, Finishing Strong, to really capture the the main thrust of the book of 2 Timothy. This is Paul's final letter. His final letter, he is sitting in a prison cell in a, a deep, dark pit, chained to a Roman soldier. He is awaiting his impending death, and we know church history tells us that he would lose his head All of this for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And he writes this final letter to Timothy, a young pastor in the church of Ephesus, and he uses this picture of perseverance to motivate Timothy in terms of his spiritual life and his spiritual ministry. He longs to see him finishing strong. I mentioned last week that I spent a lot of time growing up uh, running track and field and spent some time in a track club. One of the things that I was reminded of this week was three times a week we would meet in this track club and we always began by doing this circuit training. Before we got into the actual workout for the day, we, we did this long, what seemed like to me at the time, a pointless or tedious circuit where we would run lap after lap of the track and stop at stations, individual stations at different points along the track that were intended to help us focus in, hone in um, some particular area to strengthen us. So we get to one station and we'd have to sit and do 100 crunches. And then we get to another station, we'd have to do 50 push-ups. And we get to another station, we'd have to do some plyometrics with some box jumps. And and on and on and on it went. Hundreds and hundreds of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, box jumps, you name it. And over time, what I began to see was that this was an important part of the conditioning process. To be able to strengthen key muscle groups would actually lead to my success in the realm of running track and field. In fact, what I saw was that a lack of commitment to some of these basic developmental conditioning exercises would actually limit my success on the track. You know, in the same way, our success in the Christian life is dependent upon some conditioning exercises, a willingness to be honed and to grow and to be strengthened in certain spiritual muscle groups, if I could use that analogy. And if we fail to strengthen these spiritual muscle groups, what we will find is that we will not be able not only to finish strong, we will not be able to start strong or to maintain any level of consistency in our Christian life. We will not last, we will not persevere, we will not experience the success in the things of God and the things that God is actually calling us to, but if we learn to focus in, to hone these spiritual muscles, to be strengthened in some specific areas of our lives, God tells us that we can gain great success. Paul looks at Timothy and in many ways, he looks at him and he says, Timothy, the mark of success will be your faithfulness. Now, how is it that you can experience greater faithfulness? How is it? What are the means of developing these spiritual muscles so that you can experience greater success? We pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says these words to Timothy. Look at the heart of Paul towards Timothy. You then, my child, he says. 
Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He says, Timothy, and he says to us, listen, loved ones, here, here is how you can achieve success in the Christian life. Success means, first, strong dependence. It means that this must characterize our life. We must have a, a growing and increasing sense of strong dependence. And as Paul begins to write to Timothy, remember the context that we find ourselves in. He's finished in chapter one and he's given two contrasting examples. He gives an example of some who are unfaithful, who lack the commitment to Paul and to Jesus Christ and they ended up abandoning him in this faithless kind of Christianity. And then he gives a powerful example of a man named Onesiphorus who is so faithful, who served so, so well. Everywhere he went, his life was characterized by this faithfulness. And he looks at Timothy and he calls him, as we saw last week, to guard the good deposit. And he says, Timothy, if you're gonna be like the faithful servant that we have just talked about, that requires that you are being strengthened in the Lord. In other words, you can't do this in your own strength. You can't simply pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make this happen on your own. You need to be being strengthened. Now you'll notice that word that he uses, be being strengthened, and that's how it should be translated. This idea of it's something being done to you. It's a passive sense showing us that the strength comes from a divine source outside of ourselves, but it is at the same time a present tense verb which demands that action actually be taken repeatedly and continuously in our lives. So while this is something that is done to us, there is a part that we must play to make sure that it is constantly happening in our lives, that there is this sense of strengthening that is ongoing. This is the constant need for the successful Christian life of service. It is spiritual strength. This is a theme, the theme of power, that the Spirit is, gives us a, a, a power, love, and self-control. We see this idea of power coming to the Christian constantly in Paul's writing, especially here in 2 Timothy. But he looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, this is what you desperately need. And he looks at us and says, this is what you desperately need, church. Accessing spiritual power, by the way, is preparatory to other activities that we are required to carry out in the Christian life. And so the imperative here is that you must seek the power that God provides so that you can carry out what God requires. And notice that this strength comes by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I love that, the strength comes from grace. Again, Paul talks about grace so often in this letter, and he wants to remind us that this grace is already in you if you're in Christ Jesus. It's something you have access to already. It is already right there at the tip of your fingers. 
because it's found in Christ Jesus who dwells within you. This idea of in Christ Jesus speaks to the union that we have in Christ Jesus. You know, it's important to understand that Paul mentions this in verse nine of chapter one. He says that God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace is what he says. He says, God saved you, not because you are good enough, not because you are smart enough or wise enough or competent enough, only because of his good grace. It was the grace of God that he looked upon us in our sinful condition and he said, I love you so much, I'm going to come and die for you, right? That's what we celebrate this morning. That's why we love the gospel so much. We see ourselves and the hopeless condition that we're in and what we see is a God, as we just sang, who is almighty and is so holy and perfect and in whose presence we would tremble. If we were there, we couldn't look at him with our fleshly eyes. We would fall before him because of his awesome perfection and holiness. Our sinfulness utterly separates us from him and we see this in ourselves when we see God through the scriptures. But what we see is this, a God who says, I know you can't get to me and so I will come to you, that is grace. And he comes and he dies a death that we deserved. He gives us life because of his grace, but it's important to understand this, Christian, listen, listen, you are saved by grace, and then the grace that you are saved by continues to bless you with ongoing, continual enablement to live the Christian life. It's inside of you, and I love the way the word of God speaks of grace. There's so, so much we could go to to see God's grace, but just think about what John 1.16 says. Listen, he says, from, from his fullness, speaking of Jesus Christ, we have all received, listen to this, grace upon grace. I love that. You see, if you're in Christ, you have grace heaped upon you and piled upon you over and over and over again. James says it like this. He says, and he gives more grace. James 4, 6 says that. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 on the screen behind me, listen to what Paul says about God's grace in terms of his life and ministry. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can't we all agree with that? And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, Paul attributes everything in his spiritual life, all the success in his spiritual life is anchored right here. You have to see this right out the gates because everything else that Paul says to Timothy in this passage is all rooted and grounded and filtered through this picture right here. It all comes from the strengthening grace of God. That's the only way you can be strong in any regard in the Christian life. And it begins with a strong dependence upon God. That is how we access the grace of God. And yet sometimes I feel like, you know, if, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been through those seasons, haven't you? Those dry seasons in your life, maybe you're in one right now, where you, you know the grace of God's available to you, and yet you feel like you have no grace. I can't keep going on. Everything's dried up. Like, that's exactly where Timothy is. You have to, there's a reason why Paul is writing this to him, right? Everybody's abandoned him, ministry is hard, things are getting worse by the day, he feels like he's tapped out, it's all run its course, I think I might just have to throw the towel in, and Paul looks at him and he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
And I think sometimes we feel a lot like Timothy maybe was inclined to feel right here in the Christian life, just tapped out. Where is this grace? Well, why am I not experiencing this, gra- this grace? How come I'm not, I'm not flourishing in this grace? And we feel that, don't we? And here's, here's what I think we're like as Christians sometimes. You know, gra- the grace of God, if you can just imagine with me. Have you ever been to like, or seen pictures, maybe that's probably more likely, of, of those really beautiful waterfalls? I mean, think of a tropical destination, a freshwater waterfall just gushing over the sides from a natural spring. It is cold, crisp, refreshing water. And yet oftentimes, as Christians, we're, we're, we're like this. We're, we're sitting here and we see the waterfall. And we're over here and we're thinking, man, I am so tired. I can't do this. I'm hot and I'm so thirsty. And we look over at the waterfall and say, oh, that, that looks so good. Oh, I wish I could just dunk my head under that waterfall. I wish I could just open my mouth and just suck the water in and refresh and revive my soul. And God says, okay, do it. It's just right there. We just simply need to access it. We need to stop standing there staring at it. We need to stop standing there talking about it. We need to stop sitting there and imagining what it might feel like and we need to actually move towards the grace of God. This is the analogy I want you to understand. We need to move toward the grace of God. We need to put ourselves underneath the waterfall of God's grace in our lives. You see, that is the twin truth here. God's grace is overflowing towards us but we need to move under the grace of God so that we can experience the refreshing, the strength and the reviving of our souls. Here's a great principle you need to embrace in the Christian life. Listen, I'm as strong in the grace of God as I want to be. I'm as strong in the grace of God as I want to be. You see, God's grace towards us is never changing. It is always grace upon grace. It's just a matter of how closely we are drawing into that grace, standing under that grace. You say, well, how? How do I then draw near? How do I experience this grace? You know, theologians talk about this in these terms. They call a certain spiritual disciplines and things that God has given us as means of grace. Can you get that picture? The means of grace, the means by which we tap into and are blessed by experientially the grace of God, that we are constantly able to tap into the source. And here's, here's what I was thinking of when I read this. How do we do this? You know, John 15, it's a very, very familiar passage of scripture. If you don't know it, you need to go home, read it, soak in it this afternoon. John 15, just look at these verses, verse seven to 10. Verse seven to 10, here's this word that is used. This is, this is what it means to draw near to God. If you abide in me. Now, eight times in seven verses, Paul uses this word abide. Or excuse me, Jesus does. And just just capture this idea. If you abide in me, here's how it happens. Listen, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There's success. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now listen, right here, just leave this up on the screen for a second. Right here, we see three very specific means of grace that will enable us to be sitting under the waterfall of God's grace. The first one is this, the word of God. 
You see, if you abide in him, it means his word abides in you. That means this, you have to spend time in God's word. This right here, the word of God, is one of the greatest means of grace God has given to his people. This is how we know him. This is how we then love him. And then this is how we live for him. We go to the word of God and we soak in the grace that is ours as we get to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ. The second one we see here, you'll notice just in the second part there, he says this, ask whatever you wish. Now, by the way, that's not a blank check. This all has to do with spiritual reality. But can you just note this, that prayer is also one of the primary means of grace God gives us. This is over and over again, we see this in scripture. So the word of God, prayer, is the means by which we humble ourselves before God. We go to God and we say, God, I, I am not strong enough. I am too weak. I'm not sufficient. I'm not adequate, but God, I know you are and we draw near to the throne of grace. I love that language out of Hebrews. We we cling to the throne of grace. We do that through prayer, humble prayer and petition, asking God. Listen, some of you, you need to go to God. You say, I want the grace, God. Go to him, go to him, and ask him, God, I need your grace. Lord, your word says you give more grace. God, unleash your grace upon me as I humble myself before you. Lord, you say, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. God, I want more grace from you to survive and to thrive in the Christian life. That's a prayer in line with God's will and he is pleased to answer. The third thing here is this, not only through the word, not only through prayer, but through obedience. Obedience is one of the great means of grace, not by which we earn God's favor, not by which we earn God's grace, but notice this, that God continues, and this is what James 4 talks about, through our obedience, through our humble following of God's word, Abiding in his love. Listen, we go to the word of God and we go to prayer primarily to stir and to grow our affection for Jesus. And when our love for Jesus is expanding and growing, that love translates into obedience because we love to serve the one who loves us so much, don't we? We love to do what he asks of us. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. By the way, you want to know who the perfect example of all of this is? Jesus, Jesus Christ, the man who accessed the means of grace through the word of God, constantly memorizing, meditating, preaching, quoting, always in the word of God, praying, and always obeying everything God did. Be strengthened, listen, in grace. And when you are, this enables and empowers everything else that God requires of you. It begins right here. You must have strong dependence. Secondly, success means strong discipleship. Strong discipleship, again, can only be strong if it flows out of this strong dependence. Here we pick up a verse two, and it says this, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a passage that is so often used to describe the necessity of discipleship in the church of Jesus Christ, and rightly so. By the way, chapter one was primarily about protecting the gospel. If you were with us through chapter one, you notice that there is a strong emphasis on protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter two then focuses on propagating the gospel. It needs to be protected, and then it needs to be propagated. It needs to be handed down. And in chapter one, we saw the requirement, listen, for God to be faithful to protect and guard what has been entrusted 
Timothy then was called to guard the good deposit, the thing that was entrusted to him. And now, Timothy's called to entrust to others this very same thing. And it really comes down to, we saw this last week, the sound, healthy doctrine or teaching, it's really the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that goes along with it, it's really right here. This is the sound doctrine. This is the word of God, rightly understood and rightly applied. This is what Timothy witnessed from Paul. He had heard it, the word of God says, from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, this was not hidden, this was not secret knowledge, this was knowledge that was readily available, that was constantly communicated. Timothy saw not only what Paul said, heard what Paul said, but he saw the way he communicated it. The truths taught are to be entrusted, notice this, strategically to others. Don't miss that, there's intentionality and strategy here. This is a command, by the way. In the same way that he was to be being strengthened, he is now commanded, it is required of him to pass on, to entrust the sound doctrine, the teachings. There is urgency implied here, and it emphasizes, by the way, the passing on for safekeeping. Remember that, that's so much at the heart of what Paul wants to communicate. It needs to be guarded by you, and it needs to be passed on and guarded by those it's passed on to. This is all about the protection and propagation of the gospel. I want you to notice too in this passage, it's, it's really, really fascinating how many generations are represented in this one verse. Look at the generations of discipleship that are mentioned. Did you count them with me there? And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations of gospel passing on. This is establishing the pattern for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. This was always the plan of God to make sure the church continued to thrive and to flourish. And I just want you to think about your own life in the realm of discipleship. You see, what God has entrusted to Timothy is the very same thing in many regards that he has entrusted to us. God has given you, if you're a follower of Christ today, he's given you the gospel. He's given you sound doctrine. He's given you the truth. And you gotta understand how significant this is. This is the truth that has eternal value. It is a treasure that God has deposited into your account. And he requires of you not just to protect it, to make sure that it's not distorted or, or, or twisted or wrongly proclaimed and applied to anybody. He actually requires of you and me to entrust this message to others. I'd like for you to think of it in regards to this simple principle. I have precisely one life to make certain that the gospel survives and thrives in another generation. And I must labor faithfully and invest it wisely. Let me say that again. I have precisely one life or one lifetime to make certain that the gospel survives, that's the protection, and thrives that is being passed on in another generation. I must labor faithfully and invest it wisely. By the way, this was the very strategy of Jesus Christ, remember? Jesus Christ, he gathered to himself, how many disciples? Twelve. And among the twelve, he had three who were particularly close to him. And he invested himself, he poured himself into these disciples. Why? Because he would give them the great commission whereby they would go and entrust to others what had been entrusted to them. 
Timothy's primary concern with these men that he is to go and find is first and foremost, notice this character, and secondly, competency. Okay, character first, that's faithful men. Competency is the idea that they're able also to teach. But I want you to see, I think in our culture, we're inclined when we look for people uh, to do ministry, a lot of times we take a very worldly perspective in this. We look secondly at character and we look first and foremost at competency. We wanna look at giftedness, we wanna look at, at their charisma, we wanna look at their abilities first and foremost, and then maybe we'll consider their character. The word of God always puts these two things in reverse. Character is always to precede competency, and here's why, here's why. This is so important to grasp in your personal spiritual life. If your competency is greater than your character, it leads to catastrophe. If your competency is greater than your character, it leads to catastrophe. This has happened time and time again. Where somebody's giftedness is great, but it so far outweighs their character that the success and the glory that is heaped upon them, the praise that they experience because of their competency, their character cannot bear the weight of that. And it ultimately ends in utter destruction. It's a really, really sad reality. But listen, where character is stronger than competency, you get to do what Paul does, right? You get to say, I am but what, what I am but by the grace of God, right? That's all it is. My, 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 right, that, the humility that is produced through your character and integrity is, enables you to recognize that everything you have is a gift from God. You don't steal glory. You don't take glory or try to hold glory that you actually cannot bear the weight of. You give it back to the one who deserves it all. And so he says to look for faithful men. Faithful is so key, we saw this last week. And you know, this is for sure a necessary, rea- necessary, necessary reality, excuse me, for those who are going into ministry. That is, by the way, part of what Paul is calling Timothy to do, look for faithful men who are gonna be able to step up and lead, who are gonna be pastors and elders and Reminded by this, this idea of faithfulness really reminds us that ministry is not for the faint of heart, but for the thick of skin. You see, there was a vacuum that already existed because of the defection in Ephesus and the desertion in Asia and Rome by a number of former followers, disheartened by Paul's imprisonment. Remember the context? People are abandoning wholesale. There was a lack of faithfulness. And so Paul looks at Timothy in light of this context and says, Timothy, you have to find faithful men who are thick of skin, who are not gonna tuck tail and hightail it out of there when things get hard. There are new workers, Timothy, that you need to grab a hold of, that they must be commissioned into the work of the ministry, but, but don't, don't just see this as only regarding those who would be called into ministry. This is a necessary reality for all discipleship in the Christian life. We use a, kind of a three-pronged focus, really simple way of breaking this down. I wanna, I wanna help you think about discipleship in these terms. By the way, our church is rooted and grounded in the concept of discipleship. Our mission statement is all about making disciples, isn't it? We wanna see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. Now here's how we do that in in a kind of a three-pronged focus that I think is actually really accurately reflected in this text. The first thing is, is, is discern. Discern, it requires, if you're gonna make disciples, you need to discern, first and foremost, character and commitment to Jesus Christ. 
And so you go through a process of determining, you know, how is this person already following Christ? What does their spiritual life look like? How, how do they function in terms of their relationships and their marriage with their kids? Are they faithful to the things of the Lord? Are they already serving? Are they simply looking for a title? Do they simply want recognition? Or do they care nothing of those things? All they care about is the fame of Jesus Christ. And once you've discerned those who are faithful, the second thing we do is we develop. In the development, we see this in the text as entrusting. You see that concept there, right? This passing on of what has been passed on to you. This is so necessary. It's not only critical to discern those who are faithful, but to develop the faithful and to pour into them and to make wise and intentional investments. See, how is this done? Well, this is done in a variety of different ways. There's no one set pattern to follow when it comes to developing disciples of Jesus Christ. I like to think of discipleship as less about a factory line and more about a science lab. Right, a factory line, you just think there's a cookie cutter way to do this. That's not the way discipleship works. It's like a science lab where you're tweaking and adjusting and you know, testing and affirming and putting a little bit of this here, a little bit of that there. Seeing what blows up. We develop through intentional investment and it can look like this. It can be formal or informal. It can be structured or unstructured. It can be one-on-one or it can be in a group context. It can be all of these and so much more, but it requires the passing on of what has been passed on to you. And lastly, you discern, you develop, and then you deploy. And you see that here in that they are now able to teach others also. You send them off. You say, what I did for you you go and do for others, and hopefully you do it better than I was able to do it. And this is the pattern for continuation of ministry and its expansion. It's helpful to note from this too that the primary leaders in the church must be primarily equippers. They can't just be the doers of the work of the ministry, right? This was the problem in Acts chapter six. They can't just be the doers, they must be the equippers. They've been given a specific role to develop and to build up and then to send out Being transformed by Christ, by the way, I love this idea of sending out because being transformed by Christ changes our orientation from simply receiving to consistently looking beyond ourselves to others. Christ reorients every life he invades with a focus beyond itself. And this is really a call for the church. I want you to think of discipleship in your life right now. And I want you to ask yourself the question, am I a faithful disciple? Am I a disciple that people would look at and see marks of faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Or would they see an unfaithfulness that characterizes me? And if you are a faithful follower of Christ, I want you to then look around you and I want you to be asking yourself this question, am I passing on to others what has been passed on to me? And by the way, this begins, if you have kids, it begins in your home. And then you look outside of your walls in the context of the local church and you look for people that you can be pouring your life into, that you can have into your home, that you can be reading scripture with, that you can be studying good books with. This is how we are to operate in the church. So success means not only strong dependence, but strong discipleship. This has gotta be the core of who we are. And thirdly, success means strong devotion. 
Paul now gives a third command. And it shouldn't be surprising because it is a repeated theme again throughout this letter. Share in suffering, he says. That's the command. Share in suffering, Timothy. How are you to do that? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Because no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He looks at Timothy, remember, both of these men are suffering greatly. Paul will say later on in the letter that essentially everybody has abandoned him, but he looks at Timothy and he sees one who is willing to stick by him in the hardest of times, who's not leaving his side, no matter how challenging it gets. And he just reminds him this gentle, loving command, suffer with me, Timothy. Suffer with me. Don't leave me to suffer alone. Bear in sufferings with me. Help me suffer. Suffer as I watch you suffer. It's going to help me suffer. And as you watch me suffer, it's going to help you suffer because we are called to a life of suffering. You know, it was expected that soldiers, when you join up in the military, it's expected that a soldier stands alongside the other soldiers no matter what the cost, right? They suffer together, that they win together, they lose together, they enjoy celebrating victory together, and they suffer defeat together, but you don't abandon one another in the heat of the battle. That's just the way it goes. I remember reading about George Washington in the Revolutionary War, commanding the army, this is before he was president of the United States. He was called to whip this riff-raff bunch of renegade soldiers into shape, and one of the things he did was to help clean them up. He made it very clear that if you deserted the army, the force, you would be shot. It's that serious. To my recollection, he never actually shot any deserters. He actually, I do recall that he actually ordered the execution of a mass group of those who were deserters, but he actually reneged on it and just had them all flogged. That's a lot nicer. Paul here begins the first of three analogies to describe the realities of a follower of Jesus Christ, specifically a minister of Jesus Christ, but in general, listen, every follower of Jesus Christ can look at these analogies and say, yes, that is what I am called to be. Each one of these has a slight nuance, emphasizing a different aspect of the suffering that is required or involved in the success of the Christian life. Paul begins with this analogy of the soldier to depict the kind of single-minded devotion required. He looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, look at the soldier. Look at his strong devotion. That is exactly what I call you to in this Christian life. A soldier was required to have this kind of single-minded devotion that was actively engaged in the assignment that was undistracted and that was wholeheartedly committed Single-mindedness is really the ability to focus, to shut everything out when necessary. It's the key to surviving or to success in virtually every area of life. It's the essential ingredient for success in the sports arena. It separates the good athletes from all the rest. 
It's a necessary ingredient for success in the business realm, the ability to hone in, to focus on what needs to be done, to think deeply. It's the necessary ingredient for success in the academic world. It's a necessary uh, ingredient for success for sure in the military. When everything goes haywire, when everything goes crazy, are you able to zero in and get the job done? But here, you need to notice this, the focus is not on sports, it's not on business, it's not even on the battlefield in terms of a military endeavor, it is on Christ himself and how to please him. You see, Jesus Christ is our commander-in-chief. And this single-minded disciple that we are called to be in this world is called to make sure that we're not entangled in the world. It's a fascinating word that Paul uses here, that, that he doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. I think the way that Peter uses this word actually gives us a sense of what this can look like. In 1 Peter 3.3, 3, he talks about uh, women and the, the braiding of their hair. That's the, that's the same word, the braiding of hair, the, the interlocking. It's enmeshed, it's woven tightly together. The word is used in secular literature as well, uh, literally to speak of a sheep whose wool is caught in thorns or thickets. The idea is to be interlaced to the point of immobility. You're so woven in. It's so tightly knit to your life, your focus, your heart, your affections, your attention. It's so ingrained. You can't separate them, and it immobilizes you to do the work that you're actually called to do by God. And so you, you need to hear this. This is not saying that you can't participate in the world. Right? God's not calling you all to go and quit your job. Okay? We got bills to pay. Please don't do that. But what it is saying is this, even in the world, listen, when we live our lives in the world, when we, we do the things that this world has to offer, and there's lots of things that we are rightfully, by the grace of God, allowed to enjoy and participate in, the issue is this, are we devoting ourselves and our heart and our affections to the things of this world, or are they devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, this is a call to be reminded that pleasing God is the first and highest priority of our lives. By the way, that's how you know that he is your master. You say, how, how can I tell if my life is so woven in with the world right now? How, how, just give me one simple way to tell if my life is being dominated by the things of the world. Just answer this question in your own heart right now before the Lord and, maybe, and just ask that God will give you wisdom here. Is pleasing God your first and highest priority? Is that the filter through which everything else in your life is run? All of your decisions, the way you spend your time, the way you schedule your life, is the vast, listen, are you consistently asking that question? Is, is this going to please God? Is this going to bring honor and glory to God? That's how you tell that he is your master because in everything you do, you want him to be glorified, right? The first Corinthians, I was reading this morning in, in my devotional time with the Lord, first Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do is filtered through that lens. Now I understand, listen, that, that every one of us is gonna sit here and say, no, not everything. And I would say to that, yes, I, I'm with you. I wish I could say every single thing I do is always to that ends. But, but here's what I want you to ask. Is this a consistent pattern of your life? Is this, is this more normative in your life than not? 
And like a good soldier, we avoid anything that will hinder single-minded devotion to our master. We, we look at those things through that grid and say, if this doesn't please the Lord, if this doesn't bring him honor and glory, I can't do that. And if we're consistently saying, I don't care what pleases God, I don't care what brings him glory, I care more about my pleasure and my glory, that's how you know that your life is enmeshed with the things in the world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, I love that, there it is again, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, and here's the analogy he's using it for, God and money. You just take money out of there and put in a whole lot of things, but you better know this, that money is one of the greatest temptations to master us. The love of money, the love of possessions. You don't have to be rich, by the way, to love money. Many a poor people sit and think more about money than some of the wealthiest people on the planet. And if you're not devoted to Jesus, here's another way you can tell. If you're not devoted to Jesus, you will not suffer for Jesus when he asks you to. And that's what's happening with Timothy. Case study after case study of those who weren't truly devoted to Jesus, and when they were called to suffer for Christ's sake, they abandoned ship. But when Jesus Christ is your master, when everything is done to please him, then you look at suffering and you say, Lord, if this is what you have for me, if this will bring you glory, if this will bring you honor, then Lord, I will suffer for your sake. So who is your master? Charles Spurgeon says it better than most. And hear this, hear this call to your own heart this morning. He says, up, I pray you now, by him whose eyes are like a flame of fire and yet were wet with tears. By him on whose head are many crowns and who yet wore the crown of thorns. By him who is king of kings and lord of lords and yet bowed his head to death for you. Resolve that to life's latest breath you will spend and be spent for his praise. The Lord grant that there be many such in this church good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That is success. That is success. Strong devotion. Secondly, or fourthly, excuse me, strong discipline. Verse five, he picks up on the analogy of an athlete and he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know, an athlete too knows how to suffer. And the nuance of this analogy focuses on discipline. Specifically, the discipline of following the rules. Did you catch that? Ancient athletes who participated in the Olympiad, they first had to complete a required 10-month training period, and then they had to actually swear an oath that they had done it. Those are the rules. On top of that, they had to compete in their individual events according to the prescribed rules or else they would be disqualified. They would not be awarded the prize. Pretty simple, pretty basic. This is what he's talking about. The reward hinges upon competing according to the rules. In, in addition to, focus, to this focus, it actually suggests an, a rigor and a sweat, a suffering that goes into the preparation as part of the rules. Paul uses the same picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete, here it is, exercises self-control, discipline in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I am old enough to remember when Ben Johnson won the Olympics and then the prize of the gold medal was quickly taken away and shame and scorn were heaped upon him. And if that's too far back in Canadian history for you, remember not long ago when Lance Armstrong, Tour de France is on right now, and I can't help watching it without thinking, Lance Armstrong, seven-time winner of the Tour de France, one of the most acclaimed athletes in all the world, stripped, listen, of every single title he won simply because he was caught cheating. And here's the lesson for you and I. Listen, how I do ministry, how I live the Christian life is as important as the fact that I am doing ministry. How you do what you do is crucial to your success. So Paul says again that there must be the single-minded, wholehearted discipline in the Christian life. And the truth is that none of us will get anywhere without this in any area of life, not really, not any degree of success that matters. And we need to be reminded that just like in life, there are no shortcuts to spiritual success. It doesn't get any easier, by the way. The more disciplined you get as an athlete, the harder you beat your body, you know, you subject it to all these trainings and disciplines. The more you do that, it doesn't actually get any easier, you just get stronger. You're able to take more of the pressure. You're able to withstand more of the pain. You're able to press on. And that's exactly what Paul wants for Timothy. Someone who is conditioned by such discipline as an athlete will be able to willingly join in the suffering and enjoy the eternal crown that awaits. You see, Paul loves to do this, by the way, throughout this letter. Do you see what motivates this kind of living? It's not the here and now, the immediate success, the immediate benefits of this life. It is the future reward that is being laid up for you in heaven. How we need to be reminded of that in the Christian life. We press on, we look for success, not here and now primarily, but in the day that we will stand before Jesus Christ and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the success we long for and it requires strong discipline. Fifth, strong discipline. Not only that, but strong diligence. The third analogy he gives is of a hard-working farmer he says in verse 6, the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You know, farming is hard work today. And it was especially hard work in the first century. Among many other things, a farmer's life involved early and long hours because he could not afford to lose the time. It required constant toil, plowing, sowing, tending weeds, pretending, excuse me, weeding, reaping, storing, all of these aspects. It required regular disappointments from pests, from frost, from disease. It required much patience. Everything happened at less than slow motion. And it also required an ability to put up with incredible amounts of boredom. 
Paul was speaking about the hard work of spiritual ministry when he looked at Timothy and he said, Timothy, I mean, you have to understand that this doesn't all happen overnight. The fruit bearing doesn't always happen immediately and constantly. The ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ requires strain and struggle and diligence, all of which are related to suffering, by the way. And diligent people are better at suffering. Many Christians' lives are like the farmers. This is true, this has always been true in history. Although there may be the occasional times of excitement and unique satisfaction and experiencing maybe unique blessings from the Lord, the daily routine is often in itself very unattractive and unrewarding. And we want there to be a quick fix, don't we? We, we all love a quick fix. We live in a, in a quick fix kind of world. We, we want infomercial sanctification, right? It's just three easy payments of $39.99 and you can be holy. It doesn't work like that. It requires great diligence. Sanctification is a long obedience in the same direction. It takes time. It takes strong diligence but I want you to note that the hardworking farmer will be the first in line for the reward. And the reward, here's the point, the reward will so far outweigh the toil. There is a day coming, you have to see this. Yes, it's hard, yes, it's a grind, yes, life is painful, yes, there are moments of suffering that are utterly unbearable, but there is a day coming where the reward for your faithfulness in the midst of suffering will be so greatly rewarded I mean, you won't be able to compare, right? These present afflictions, there will be nothing compared to surpassing riches that are in heaven waiting for us. It's because of this that Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Christian, get to the plow. Keep your hand at the plow. Don't look back, right? Those those who look back after putting their hand to the plow, Jesus says in Luke 9, are unworthy of the kingdom of God. If you're at the plow and then when things get hard, the ground is, is not being broken up the way you want and you look back and say, it was better without Jesus. It was better when I didn't have to go through all this pain. Listen, those who do that are unworthy of the kingdom of God. And no one who labors for the Lord will fail to be rewarded. Let me say that again. No one who labors for the Lord will fail to be rewarded. It requires strong diligence, and finally, it requires strong deliberation. He ends with this simple saying. He looks to Timothy after giving him all this information these three different analogies, and he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The idea of deliberation is a necessity in the Christian life. The concept there, think over is what he says, or consider, reflect, contemplate, meditate, process over and over. By the way, it is a present active imperative, meaning this, that it is something that is to be done continually and habitually. This has to be an ongoing reality in your life. If you are to experience success in the Christian life, you must learn to be somebody who deliberates and intentionally, listen, contemplates the things 
of the Lord over and over and over again. Because comprehension often follows contemplation. The the Holy Spirit, know this in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual insight to those who contemplatively meditate upon God's word with a heart towards obedience. Whenever you go to the word of God and you read it and you're saying, God, I I wanna know this truth. I wanna hear from you. I want you to change me. And you're chewing on the word of God in prayer, longing, saying, God, I want you to change me so that I can obey you more, so that I can worship you more. God loves to answer that kind of holy contemplation. And we so often roll right over this kind of reality in our personal time with the Lord, in our devotional time. We simply read and we do not stop to think and consider what God is trying to say to us. And these analogies of the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier would help Timothy understand, not only in this moment, but in the days ahead, would help him understand the call to join with him in suffering. What it looks like to experience success in the Christian life and Christian ministry. And all three have the element of suffering, right? The soldier's single-minded devotion, the athlete's rigorous uh, exercise and discipline, the farmer's diligent toil, and they all have their reward. As one commentator said, beyond warfare is victory, beyond the athlete's effort is the prize, and beyond agricultural labor is the crop. And when things got harder, and when things get harder in your life, you're gonna need to see these pictures and be reminded of what God would have you do I wonder as you think over these things, maybe even right now, prayerfully before the Lord, is the Lord giving you some understanding this morning? Just ask him right now, God, where am I deficient? God, where must I grow? God, what are you calling me to do with what you have taught me through your word this morning? And at different seasons in life, God can take the same truths and apply them in different ways. So you're going to need to make this a regular practice. It's our responsibility to forget, or excuse me, to forge the habits of strong deliberation so that we might reap the rewards of spiritual success.